welcome to Playing for the Master, a podcast on theater, faith, culture, and other shenanigans. Okay. Well, this is the... Uh, possibly... Maybe... It's sort of... Official podcast... For Unmuted Arts... And Master Arts Theater. everybody so hello i am here with my friends megan and john taylor uh who live down in dallas texas i am not down in dallas texas because i was lazy and i didn't record it while i was down in dallas texas but uh john and megan both have done a lot of ministry and a lot of art and so when tim and i were thinking about doing a podcast about theology and theater and stuff we were like hey they'll be great so John is a graduate of Cornerstone University, and he's going to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he's got like a year of that left. And then Megan is awesome. She's got like her own little Etsy shop. Um, she works for the bookstore there and for uh, a pet grooming store. So she does a whole lot of stuff. And she also does art and Bible study and just all the cool things. So awesome. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing good, yeah. Cool. Megan uh, and John. Megan, I know you've been in a very large amount of shows. And John, you've been in not quite as large an amount of shows. But what was it uh, for each of you? What was it that made you both want to get involved in theater and the arts in general? Um, I know you've both done art outside of theater. So what was it that kind of attracted you to that? That's a really good question. I think it kind of goes back to my childhood. I've always loved being creative and uh, my sister and I would always be acting out different movies or books that we read as children. We did a lot of reading for school as part of our education. We were very story oriented. So I feel like that has kind of just driven throughout my life. I love stories. I love telling stories. I love listening to stories. And I just love being created with those. And like I said, I always loved acting them out. And whether that be through playing or singing or dancing, I just always loved doing that. And it wasn't really until I was in high school that I realized that this is something I really am passionate about. It's not just a side of me that I want to let be stagnant. I want to keep doing this. this is something that I truly love and I get energized by it. I feel closer to God when I'm doing majority of it, especially if it is already scripture-based or worship-based. It's just something that really fills me up and brings me joy. For bass, because I play upright bass, that was just simply my elementary school had a performance of the high schoolers and the bass was cool. <laughs> So I decided, time to play bass. And I orchestra. Theater, first time I did theater, I have a very distinct memory why I joined that show. Really simple. The girl I liked had signed up for the show. And I was like, hey, if I do the show, I have a chance to hang out with the girl I like. So I did the show. And then I enjoyed the show, so I started doing later shows in middle school and high school as well. Nice. 
I would like to add to mine of you asked specifically what drew me to theater versus other art. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that goes back to, I just have a different relationship to theater than I do with other art. I feel like it's a way that I'm able to, like every artist expresses themselves through art, but I feel like theater is one that I have a closer connection to. And I feel again, that more driven towards <laughs> and the joy towards so I feel like the theater, as I, as I got into the high school, like I said, there was something that I wanted to pursue more and to be more involved with. It was that turn of realizing where I felt my art really awesome, if that's a word, that's a word I want to use. Megan, you said you guys read a lot of books growing up. Were there specific books or pieces of art that like influenced you guys while you grew up? Um, in your life, in like the person you want to be or in your faith? That's another really hard question. I just have to think about all the different books I read as a child and what <laughs> really influenced me. We actually had a question in this. John and I are both taking a class at DTS that is about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. J.R.R. And that was actually one of the questions that they asked. And it was really bad mm -hmm. I never answered it because I was trying to think of what book influenced me the most. And I just had such a hard time. And because there's so many different things that have spoken to me and different times in my life that I've read before and I'll come back to and I'll get something new out of it. But I definitely, if I do have to highlight some would be Chronicles of Narnia. Those are ones that throughout my life have just come back and I'll learn different things that, it's just the creativeness and the different worlds that C.S. Lewis created in those books are just so beautiful and so artistic in themselves uh, that have spoken to me. And then some other stories that I just really liked throughout my childhood are series of unfortunate events. Mm -hmm. uh, don't know why that really stands out. I can't think of a way that it really has influenced me other than it's just one that is, again, a more unique story and is a little more quirky. Uh, other ones, let me think about it in a minute. Sean, do you have anything to add? I think I can say with definite assurance that the book I read that influenced my faith the most was the Bible. <laughs> I could see you leading up to that. <laughs> I think that's pretty sure. That's a fair answer. I think I think that's a, that's the right answer, probably. I actually can't really think of. I read a lot of stories as kids, so I read Chronicles of Narnia, all of them. I read The Hobbit like six times, and The Lord of the Rings not at all. <laughs> as many people do. Yep. And then I read a whole series. I read the series of unfortunate events. I was waiting for them to come out. I, I, I caught up. Uh, I read a book, a series called the Pendragon series, uh, which is not that overwhelmingly well-known, but it was very good for a young man audience. <laughs> and I read a number of other books, played a lot of video games, watched a lot of movies. I got my art through many means. What are ways that your faith in Christ has impacted you in the art that you've done, not just in theater, theater obviously being a prevalent one, 
but with anything you've done with music or dance or painting or basket weaving. Basket weaving. How has your faith impacted your basket weaving? I want to know. I think one of the ways it had, the biggest way it's influenced is how I criticize myself and my art and just ultimately realizing that the art, yes, it benefits me and it's a way for me to express myself, but ultimately I don't have to be perfect in my art. Mm. And it is a way to glorify God, even if it's not perfect because we are definitely not perfect beings, but it doesn't have to be perfect because it is an expression of worship and glorifying God. And that I think is the most important thing for me to remember and something I have to remind myself in because I do like to be a perfectionist and just be able to let that go and just be able to enjoy the art that I am doing. No matter whether that be painting, dancing, singing, acting, sewing, it just doesn't have to be perfect. It's an expression to be able to be that sub creator and be able to have that connection with God and to glorify him through that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think about the most obvious one for me is the last couple poems I've written had like faith themes or critiques of things I've seen in the church. I decided poems. I, on rare occasion, I'll write a poem. That's cool. Um, and critiques I've had of the church. Uh, I don't think I've had any like obvious faith influence on board game design. What? You haven't created the altar call board game yet that by the end leads the player to Jesus? No. My brother and I have discussed with growing seriousness for years about making a video game. He, he's going to make the game. I don't have any technical skill to make a video game. But about making a game which basically is going to be probably like a teen or mature rated war game based on David's Mighty Men and David's Conquests. That would be. Is it going to be like a real-time strategy or is it going to be more? I think it's going to be more Think Shadow of War-esque. Good. Or Shadow of Mordor-esque. With like, would you be playing as different characters so you could pick the different Mighty Men with different... Yeah. Yeah. So you'd be able to play and kind of like pick up a squad and then just go out and like take out Philistines or whatever. Like, I was at one point writing a script for a Mighty Men like YouTube miniseries that never took off. So if you guys need a writer to, to create an expanded story. Yeah. Anyways. I think another I can add on more is another way that my faith has influenced my art. And I think we've had conversations about this before is there's a higher purpose than our own glorification in the art. Mm -hmm. It's just different. Just being in a Christian environment versus being in a non-Christian environment when expressing your art, again, whether that be theater or otherwise, that you can just sense the difference. Like there is a different drive and a different, again, the purpose is 
there's a higher calling to it than just your personal gratification or personal word glorification and just putting all the praise on yourself like you were in the faith-based environment your ultimate goal is to glorify god and to drive his kingdom and not build yourself up and it's a hard balance too because art we want to be good at it and again it goes back to that perfectionism of you want to make sure that it's good for god and that you're portraying him in a great light but you also have to remind yourself that again this isn't for my glory it's for his and it's a constant i think battle and just a need to remind yourself that there is that that greater purpose behind it than just yourself yeah my totally agree at least as actors we kind of have like a built-in ego Mm-hmm. Like, even if we're, like, shy and stuff in, in, like, public, we're still also, like, please put the spotlight on me and, and don't, like, it's slightly too far to the left. Can you move it so it's actually on me, please? Um, and so I think that's, like, that's an aspect of our personality that, like, God did put in us, that we like being upfront and such. But, yeah, there's definitely that balance. I really want to mess with you because you didn't know I wrote poetry and be like, I really think my faith expressed itself in my last recorder symphony that I composed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, anytime I watch the recorder class play, I'm just like, Lord, your presence is here. It's like... You know what? But on the flip side, there's actually some great recorder symphonies that if you haven't listened to, you really need to listen to. He's played some. That's, that's gonna be hard to win me over on, Sean. It's a it's a recorder. They have their place in the art world. They have their place. This is not on my question list, but I, I think I do want to talk about steel magnolias for a couple different reasons. Um, because A, my what an offstage experience, um, not necessarily in all the drama that happened, but in examining that difference between, as you were saying that Christian atmosphere that's doing it for, for God's glory as opposed to the secular atmosphere that's doing it for themselves. Um, I kind of want to delve into that a little more. But also, like that role definitely had a lot of parallels to struggles in your life. Um, and I don't think I've ever talked to you, even when we were talking during the period of time that that show was happening, about what that was like performing that role. Um, so what is it like performing a role that's, so similar to you and so similar to the struggles you're going through um, in relation to your personal life and art and that relationship with God. In a way, I think it's a blessing and a curse because on one side, it's easier to get into character and to relate to the character and come up with that backstory and really have those raw emotions when going and acting that role. But also it's a curse because, again, you don't want it to be you. You want to make sure you're actually that character, not just yourself. Uh, But it was really interesting playing that role and relating to some, obviously not the exact same struggles that the character Shelby had, but I was able to relate in the aspect of, I did go through the same struggles health-wise and not, again, not the exact same way, but just emotionally dealing with that and seeing 
kind of like in advance um, the way that plays out throughout your life. And it's obviously not just a certain period in your life. It is for most people with chronic illnesses, it's chronic. It goes on. Uh, so it was really interesting. And emotionally, I don't know if I really processed it while going through the show now that I think about it, just because that one year and just other circumstances along with that time period and going on even within the show that I was able to fully, again, process that. So looking back at it, I definitely think it was interesting. And I do think I was able to pour myself into that role more than I have other roles because I had that connection. Again, making that distinction of it's not me and still having that character, but having a deeper connection to the character because of that. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's important to separate yourself from the character because I've definitely made a mistake before of not when it was too close to me. Yeah, it can be really, it can be a dangerous line of getting lost in that character and becoming that character and forgetting who you yourself are. Mm -hmm. Whether that be playing, again, a character that is, has the same beliefs as you or not, it can still be dangerous. Yeah, definitely. So what was it like doing that show and obviously knowing your philosophy of art wanting to glorify God? doing that within an atmosphere where most of the people didn't want to do that and even were just, you know, not even all the time enjoying um, the show. Was it difficult to keep that perspective of doing it for God in the midst of that atmosphere? It was obviously more difficult just because I didn't have this as much support and Again, that same mindset being shared throughout the time in the cast. Um, and yeah, it just, just it changes the perspective that you have. And going through the rehearsals and the shows, it's just a different, I can't even explain the atmosphere. You can just feel it. It's, it's different. Uh, it's hard to explain, but you can, you can just tell. Uh, so I guess just combating that. Throughout the time, I was really dealing with anxiety uh, that wasn't even just related to the show, but just in general life, I was having a lot of issues with anxiety and that also played in the show and just self-doubt kept creeping up with, especially because that's just a big role. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot, again, emotionally that I had to go into that. So not having as much of a support system within the cast of having the, my faith being, a major part of it was again, it was difficult. Um, but I just had to keep reminding myself that again, it's not for my personal gain, even though the show and that character is not faith-based and it isn't pointing towards Christ or his kingdom. I can still with those around me when I'm not on stage, be that, that light or that that presence of faith, I guess. Um, and just keep as much as I could a, an attitude that would glorify God. And as much as I could keep that, keep that in mind and not forget again, who it was for and reminding myself that again, I don't have to be perfect. And ultimately it's not, the world's not going to end if, if I don't do this perfectly. And I wouldn't say that not everybody, because obviously, like, 
the director and there were other cast members that did have faith. It just was a different atmosphere. The theater of itself wasn't, yeah. so we didn't have that. So that, again, changes the dynamic of it. Mm-hmm. And I want to I wanna focus in on that community aspect. I think the community aspect of theater is something that's very... it's integral I would say and this is something Tim and I really appreciated about it is it's a very collaborative art you have to do it with other people there's other actors other people working on the set and the props and the costumes and all of that Um, and I think especially within the Christian atmosphere it's like giving me a different kind of vision for how the church is supposed to work together because through theater, I very much found friends that I consider family. You and John are one of them. Um, I met my fiance through church. I met or through, through uh, the theater. I met Tim through the theater. Um, all these people that have really impacted my life. So I guess I'm just curious if you like find a similar connection in that, in like the larger church and the body of Christ working together and the community that maybe you found in theater as well. One of the areas you were getting at is how do you have that similar connection going towards a specific purpose? Mm. And if you have a well-functioning church that is doing what it's supposed to, you have vulnerable people and broken people coming together and sharing those burdens and learning together and striving to become more Christ-like. And you want to worship and glorify God in that and learn about him more. Well, theater, you again, you have broken people and you have people coming together that are being honest with each other through their acting or they're opening up and exposing themselves to be open and more vulnerable. And you have Again, that vulnerability that you are able to connect through that, again, if the church is working, functioning as a healthy church, you're going to have that vulnerability and those raw emotions being shared and that connection of friendship and discipleship through the mentors. And if theater, you'll have directors and assistant directors, stage managers, Again, not functioning the same way that a mentor or disciple would in the church, but you still have that. It's facilitating the community and the fellowship. And because you're able to be vulnerable together, you build a special, a deeper relationship than if you were just hanging out with a group of people. In most cases, I mean, you can still have that with just hanging out with people, but it's also those all the time share together, whether that be in rehearsals, backstage, being quiet, um, or <laughs> not talking, quotation, not talking, <laughs> uh, crazy Saturdays, or even after rehearsals or after after shows, just having that community. You have a basis that you're working towards together that you don't have in most other friendships, just as a regular group. You're striving for the same thing whether that be growing closer to God or putting on the show to glorify God or to tell a specific story. It's, it's definitely a different dynamic than you have in other friendships. Mm -hmm. I feel like in theater uh, with the people I've met there, and I think this is 
partially because of like my personality and life experiences. But for me, I've really found the fellowship that I feel the church is called to have through the people like I've met there because of the deep and growing experience that a show like that can be. And when you are all working that hard for something that ultimately is like a communal act of worship, but I found just so much willingness from everyone to help and to come alongside each other with within the show and then outside of the show as well. Um, obviously it's not like every person you meet in a show is friends for life, but there's, I feel like by and large, there's this very strong community of fellowship and, and I guess servitude towards one another, which you kind of have to do in a show anyways, because if you're making it about you, then you're ruining everything, basically. That's a harsh way to put it, but you'd be stealing the scene in the wrong way or pulling jokes or, or not doing what needs to be done and all that. I don't know. But yeah, I think it's, it's similar in that way is there's different gifts in the church and we're all supposed, there's different roles and gifts in the church that help bring it together and you have to work together. There can't be one person standing out in the church. Like even the lead pastor is not the only person involved in a church. You have all these different areas and all these different ways that you have to be working together. And the same way with theater, like you have the lead, but also the person picking up trash after a show is just as important as the lead actor or actress. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's easier for, again, not easy, but easier for those in a faith-based um, theater community to work together and have that humility because we have that mindset of, like you said, working together to glorify and putting on a, I can't remember the exact phrase that you said now. Um, An act of worship. Yes, you're striving for that act of worship mm-hmm. versus putting on a show to be the best that you can be, yeah. if that makes sense. So, yeah, there's just different members of the body, and they all have their different gifts, whether that be in the church or in the theater community. Mm-hmm. So for you, Megan, having grown up doing ballet and teaching ballet – um, and that really being a passion of yours, how how do you view dance specifically as worship? For me, dance is a different type of worship than other forms of worship. For personally, it's a way for me to, there's a different way I express myself when dancing than I do in other forms. You would think being an artist that I'm really articulate in how I express myself. I tend to stumble over my words if I haven't thought them through. So for me, dance is a a way that I can let that go and really have my emotions played out. Um, and specifically for worship is there's times in your life that you can't just put into words what you need or what you're feeling or what you want to convey to God. He knows that. He knows what you are feeling. Every He knows your thoughts. He knows your pains, your anxieties. But when I'm dancing and when I'm worshiping, I'm able to express that in a way that's nonverbal and to really pour out those emotions and have 
that connection of I feel that God is listening to those those movements. Dance often gets put into a weird box because it's it's been looked down upon in throughout culture. And I think it's because the secular world has really distorted what it is mm-hmm. and has like in any aspect of life really tainted it mm-hmm. and used it for evil or for personal gain. And it's, it's hard because it gets boxed in that area of, I think part of it is the church doesn't know how to interact with it. And I think that's because it's not talked about in the Bible very much. And when it is, it's very glossed over. And it even in when it mentioned in the Bible, it's not always in a great light. Like mm-hmm. David was reprimanded for dancing and singing in the streets. And his comment is, I'll become, I mean, there's different ways to interpret, but I'll become even more undignified than this. And I think it's also when we think of that, we just think of him, you know, gallivanting through just doing nonsensical movements and that again isn't the same that we have in lyrical dance (laughs) these days too so i think it mainly comes down to the church doesn't know how to deal with it Mm -hmm. um, and they don't know what to think of it and how to exactly play it out it's not like we have a list of this is what dance should be and this is what dance shouldn't be so it has to come to that discretion of ultimately is it glorifying god is it conveying what it should be conveying? Is there a way that it could be misinterpreted? Which is, can be true for really any form of, of ministry. Of It can get tainted pretty easily of being misconstrued or taking things out of context. So. so that's a fantastic segue into this next question I have. Because I think that the church can do that with a lot of art. I think especially the Protestant church because we had like the Reformation and we got like really hardcore on the scripture, which I think is dope. I love, I love the scripture and that's totally the authority. But I think, I think a lot of times humanity has a tendency to overcorrect. And so we lost some of the artistry that you can see in Catholicism. And I think we just tended to get way harder on everything. Um, which in some areas I think that is needed. And in other areas, it's not always needed. And so I think a lot of times the church looks at art, especially performance art, and is like, what is that? I don't like it. I'm gonna write a 1000 page essay about why theater is evil. That exists somewhere. I don't remember who wrote it, but. So uh, let's bring John back in. I'm gonna throw in the lasso of biblical truth to draw John back in. Let's talk about worship and what constitutes worship in the Bible. Is that just singing or can it be work? Can it be, you know, theater and dance and all these other things that that God has made? Cooking, can that be worship? I don't know. What's what's that line? I think the biblical definition of worship I think is a lot broader than music because really realistically outside of the Psalms, let's put aside the Psalms. Singing is not mentioned that often. No. no. I mean, it's mentioned about as often as dance. 
mm-hmm. we, we get distinct mentions of singing. T- Paul talks about spiritual songs and spiritual hymns and singing that kind of stuff. So it's definitely in there. And we know from the book of Psalms, obviously, that they have songs that they sing at festivals and songs that they sing on the way to festivals and mm-hmm. songs that they sing. You know, they the army to be defeated. Yeah, in their homes. Yep. And if you've been to a, a Jewish or Messia- Messianic Jewish synagogue, even the way they read scripture is very musical. It's not exactly music, but they read it in a very musical style, which is called cantillation. And it's the traditional Jewish way to read scripture. It's almost, they almost sing all of scripture, not just the Psalms. Mm-hmm. When they read scripture in service. But just recently I've been for like papers and other stuff in specifying, I don't call it like the worship portion of the service when I'm talking about a service. I call it the musical worship mm. portion of the service because I don't want to confuse them and say the worship service is not worship plus sermon plus prayer. It is worship through music and sermon and prayer. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, a big thing that's missing, not in all churches, but in some churches is Worship is certainly a great way, or music is certainly a great way to worship, especially because worship music we have today, and for a while, hymns are this way too, are relatively easy to learn, easy to sing, easy for someone who kind of knows the piano to play it well enough, that everyone can participate, and it's a way that I can worship, and listening to the sermon and digesting it can be worship, but it's worshiping in a more theoretically i can have a more emotional expression through through music but i think yeah people will set aside the idea that like you could have a dramatic reading of scripture which is certainly worship and music not just congregationally but a, a solo performance can be music can be worship and a i mean acting out of a biblical story or a non-biblical story that services the the sermon or whatever can be worship reading traditional creeds or confessions or prayers can be worship. And then obviously going out and serving in your community. If your community needs, you know, if you live in a poor community that needs help with car repairs and you have guys who are good with car repairs, that can be a great form of worship is going out and serving. I think in scripture, some of those things we see more often like prayers and reading scripture and serving are kind of like, these are the main forms of worship, mm-hmm. which song comes along, alongside as a kind of an expression of, mm-hmm. but not the expression of. I was just thinking now, I think going back historically may have been how worship got relegated to music was everything else had like a fancy name mm-hmm. in the service. So we had like the sermon and the Eucharist, and the prayer, and they needed Christian names for songs. <laughs> so that song, songs got turned into worship, because that sounds Christian-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, I don't know, if, again, I'm not saying this is the historical fact of what happened, but... <laughs> this is the, the John 
version of history. Yeah, potentially this happened is that the terminology changed and then the thought followed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it, or not a lot of it, but some of how worship and art's relation to the church changed definitely came about with the Protestant reaction to Catholics and earlier the Catholics reaction to the Orthodox Catholic Church. And both of those went through kind of what we'll call, traditionally we call iconoclastic movements, Mm -hmm. which basically means you have an icon, which is kind of a work of art, so to say, like stained glass windows. Mm -hmm. And it happened with the Catholic and Orthodox Catholics split for a while. The Roman Catholics didn't like that. And then they got it back. Mm-hmm. Then it happened with the Protestant and uh, Catholic split is they, a lot of Protestants said, Hey, these in ways are like idols, these stained glass windows and these statues and all these things are like idols. And they went away from them. And I think in certain situations, they certainly had become idols in the Catholic church. And I think they still can be today, if not treated correctly. But treated correctly, for most of middle age Christianity, stained glass windows were an essential, and artwork in general were essential to faith, because most people couldn't read. Mm-hmm. So, and you only got what the what the preacher was preaching on was the stories you understood. But if you were able to see, hey, this is a a mural or a stained glass window or a statue of Jesus's baptism. This can teach me something about the stories I can't read. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was truly essential for a lot of people in the middle, middle ages in their faith. Cause they didn't, without these, they wouldn't know the stories of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gone away from that in part because of the idea that, Oh, these are going to be idol- turned into idols. And in part because now literacy rates are, I mean, in the 80s, 90s, in every country in the world almost. Mm-hmm. So people are like, oh, we don't need to show the stories because you can just read them. But I think that takes a lot away from ex- from artistic expression. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's value to experience, like, theologically and faith-wise, is there value to experiencing the biblical story or the biblical doctrine artistically as well as just with reading it as well. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think a lot of this of what we're talking about is more true. I won't say exclusively true, but more true of the white church in the the white church in America, because dance has been a thing in largely black churches, but most non-white churches for almost all of the time they've been around, almost all of American history. Mm -hmm. I say American because that's when we got really big black, white divided churches. Mm -hmm. It's that's when you've gotten these in minority churches. These things have been around almost the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I'm certain some minority churches don't have, don't allow dance and don't have dramatic readings and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think, People, when they read, especially read scripture for whatever reason, read it really flat. And they read, for, I'll say, they read for information because they're trying to get like, what's the teaching of this? Mm-hmm. And I think you can miss, if you're not trying to see it, a lot of the emotional expression 
that goes into scripture and take like Abraham sacrificing Isaac, this is an extremely emotionally charged thing that people mm-hmm. can kind of read past. But if you see a, a film portrayal or an artistic skit or dramatic reading of it, it can really bring to light the really powerful emotions that are going and coursing through the story. And I mean, it's true of, of almost every biblical story. I mean, all the parables, I mean, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son can certainly, piss, I mean, almost every biblical story, because people are getting thrown into lion's dens and <laughs> going to war and... Genocides are happening. Genocides, people are going into exile and people are just kind of reading it like, and then Daniel got thrown in with the hungry lions that <laughs> have killed him. I think part of that too is, at least in white American culture, we have sort of separated the academic from the artistic. Like, and I mean, I, I think it's obvious that there's a crossover because you have people like Tolkien or Lewis or Chesterton who were mad scholars, but also were mad artists as well. But I think we tend to be like, oh, so he's going for like an academic thing. He's going for like history or business or something. And so I think the study of scripture, I mean, I'm certainly learning this in Bible school and I'm sure you encountered that. You've got things like exegesis where while it does really like implore you to delve into and get into the world of that, it's a very scientific kind of method. And so there's such a push to, to just read it academically and learn the lesson as opposed to delving in and seeing, okay, well, what can I learn logically from this? But what can I learn emotionally, like from the story of Elijah and that concept of rest? Cause that's like a way more abstract. That's not a logical kind of concept. Um, and I think there's a lot of, abstract emotional things that you can pick up from the Bible, especially again, that story of Abraham and Isaac, which I love because you read something like that and it's incredibly challenging, you know, to give up your son and the thing that you were kind of putting your life's hope on almost. But then when we just read it flat, we lose that challenging question sometimes, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I think missing emotions sometimes can lead to misunderstanding scripture mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Cause we see, I, I like Elijah that you brought up cause Elijah goes on Mark Carmel, Lord acts, defeats the prophets of Baal. And then in the next chapter, Elijah is like super depressed. Yep. Um, and in the interim, a lot of his, the other prophets get killed. A lot, I mean, the prophets of Baal get killed, then prophets of the Lord get killed. And I think without understanding, like, the emotional impact of, like, hey, his friends just got killed, mm-hmm. which is, like, a one-liner, so it's easy to skip over. Mm-hmm. I think people can be like, oh, why did he go from, like, the mountaintop experience, literally, <laughs> like, super depressed and Lord... I'm all that's left. Everything's going terribly. And why did this happen? And I think without understanding the emotions of like, wait, wait, you missed in the interim. A bunch of his friends got killed. Mm -hmm. And like, he's being pursued actively to be killed. And 
I don't think people catch if you if you don't catch that you're not going to understand is he going to have a, is he having a crisis of faith because he doesn't believe you're like no it's because he's going through a genuinely terrifying time mm-hmm. and then that brings up too when you understand those emotions like a new layer to the relationship that happens there mm-hmm. and that's something I love about the story of Elijah is how clear the relationship and the back and forth is between him and God and God literally being like, you just need to sleep and eat. Okay. <laughs> but like, I think we, we can lose some of that relational aspect because relationships are primarily emotional. Yeah. And that's very much at the core of what God desires. Um, but we lose that. I think when it gets purely logical, because relationships can't just be purely logical and academic. Yeah. So I'm now going to ask you guys the most challenging question of the whole interview. All right. You keep it dead serious the whole time. This is, this is deadly serious. If you answer wrong, the world could be destroyed. So in this hypothetical world that I've created. So if you both it could be a joint power that you both have or by yourselves. But if you could have any fruit-based or vegetable-based superpower, what would that be? Again, it can be together. You can be like Wonder Twins Activate or you can have individual powers. It's, it's up to you. This is a hard question. <laughs> is it either or, fruit or vegetable? I don't know. Let me hear your pitch for the mixture one. I'm curious what that would be. Fruit. My, I'm sticking with fruit then. My superpower would be my fruit never goes bad. <laughs> and I can kind of like if you've ever seen Pushing Daisies, the TV show. I have not. You've told me about it. I've told you about it. With the touch of my finger, I can bring dead fruit back to life. Just it. Okay. Cool. That way, because fruit can go bad easily, and I love fruit, and don't always get to it before it goes bad. Like when you get the thing of bananas, and you're like, I'm going to have bananas, and then two days later, you're like, all the bananas are gone. I feel like that's kind of a lame superpower, but I guess that's my superpower. I gave you the category of fruit and vegetable based. So it's hard to find something that's really cool. Right. Or I can go a different route and say, I can, with a touch of my finger, make fruit a medicine that will heal a disease. Mm-hmm. The common cold. I want, here's, here's my power. So basically, I don't want to make myself too strong mm-hmm. because that's lame. Right. Proper balancing. I think what I would do is, Basically, whenever I eat a fruit, it goes into my stomach, but also a carbon copy of that fruit goes into a void dimension. And at call, I can call any of those fruits to my hand. They, ha- they no longer have caloric value, but they still have their... Their density. Their weight and density, yeah. And I can, like, throw them at bad guys. So if I know, like... If I'm an X-Men and, like, Magneto is coming, I need to, like, load up on, like, apples and other hard fruit, papayas, those little watermelons. 
I like load up on them and then I can and they're just appearing as I throw. <laughs> but if I didn't, but if I like forgot to eat fruit the night before, I've only got a certain stockpile of my life of fruits. And a lot of those aren't that you, a lot of those aren't that useful. There's a lot of grapes coming out that aren't doing anything. <laughs> but it's per bite too. So you could take like little nibbles and you could get quite the ammo stockpile. It, it's per, it's per fruit. One oh. apple, one whole apple equals one whole apple in the void dimension. So I really have to. Does that mean that sometimes you just have a crap ton of half eaten fruits lying around? Cause you were. Yeah. yeah. If I like watermelon it almost always comes out, but it's just the red part. <laughs> There's no rind. Because <laughs> you didn't eat the rind. Or like when the apples come, they like won't have a core. It'll be just be hollow in the middle, and I'll just chuck it. Oh my gosh, that's a glorious answer. All right. You have our two different ends of answers: the very practical, and then that one. <laughs> we fight crime. This is true, which is that, it, that, that, that is what superpowers do. I'm Fruit Man. He's Fruit Man. Well, Megan and John, thank you guys for joining me. Cool. Thank you all for tuning in to the Playing for the Master podcast. Once again, I'm John, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Playing for the Master a co-production of Unmuted Arts and Master Arts Theater, both out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our theme music is Rondo Giocoso, a piece written and performed by Richard Sertia. Our podcast is edited by Tim Van Bruggen. The views expressed by the hosts of this podcast are completely their own and may not reflect those held by the organizations as a whole. If you have any comments or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear discussed, please email them to director at masterarts.org. Thanks for listening.